Wand smoke. Broken. The expedition. But even after thwarting the troll's murderous tricks, after kissing the hideous hag and turning her into a beautiful undine who nearly succeeded in drowning him and Osum in the raging river deep, Gerard the giant slayer had yet to assail the evil king's keep. And so, through poison air, he and his eight-legged pony raced switchback after switchback till they reached the mountain peak where the keep rose bright and golden as the sun's crown. Only a little further now, across a flying buttress as big as a bridge and into the gatehouse. Gerard steadied his lance, expecting resistance, and Osum charged, his eight hooves a-thunder over the chasm below, each of his eight legs a bolt of lightning so quick did they cross safe under the first portcullis. But the second gate was closed. It was a trap. Gerard knew soon as he heard the chain whirl on its winch as the portcullis closed behind him. Then from above and from slits in the walls came the twang of quarrels. Oh, Osum, good steed, how tragic to see him fall. From the legends of Gerard the Giant Slayer, a companion lost. It's been four months since the Kobold Revolt, what the yokels are calling the Great Fay Haunt. Can I still call them yokels? Perhaps townies is more appropriate, though in a few more years we might be city folk. Or if Dermot spoke truly, maybe we'll all be thralls of the old king's corpse, new recruits for his army of ghouls. Who knows? So much has changed that I can't be sure of anything anymore. No, that's not true. I know what's important to me, what I believe is good, what is wrong, who I am. Kanti of the Clan of the Antler, Lord of the Black Flame, and Master Pyromancer of the Mystic South. I am Warden of the Vault and Guardian to the young seer called Broken, both of us citizens. The ridges and tunnels of our old home incorporated into the ever-hungry borders of the township. Foremost at the moment, though, I'm an adventurer for the Vanguard Acquisitions Company, and in that regard, I'm in a bad way. We're seated around a corner table in the King's Lodge Tavern. Me, Broken, Van Edwin, and Grant, the town marshal, as well as the newly elected treasurer, formerly Baker Thomas. I say all this because apparently those titles matter. The influx of new residents from Marigold and Glassborough let us know that it was unusual our marshal was handling taxes, let alone parceling land plots and a dozen other responsibilities he'd inherited from his father. That was a simpler time when the village was small enough to be managed by one man. Now, the powers of state are divided among the councilmen. Though until the old township and village contracts are resolved, we're stuck in transition, hence the constable's disgruntled presence. He's not happy about how much authority he's lost. Granted, he hasn't been happy since we foiled his plot to gas the kobolds. I'm still surprised I haven't been shot for what we did that night, though perhaps I shouldn't be. As soon as the king of the kobolds was defeated and the rest of the fairies captured, martial law had officially ended. Grant lost the power to conscript and execute without a vote from the council, and given that we were down a member, a flash election became the top priority. The baker, under the mystic's employ, was nominated and elected for his charitable donations during the occupation and for his supposed business sense, 
given that he owned his own bakery in the south end of Glassboro. I suspect the name of where he came from helped as well. Whatever the people's reasons, they elected him to treasurer, and immediately afterward a public council meeting was held about what to do with Edgar and the Kobolds. Two versus one, Domnall and Thomas voted that the prisoners should be sentenced to work in the mines of Oldholm, and that I be appointed warden since I own the property. I accepted the proposition. It meant free labor for me, and that my taxes would be waived. And ever since, the constable has only looked at me with disdain. And even now, as Grant reads aloud the contract, I spot his eyes flicking over the paper, hateful glares, bitter with jealousy. Let it be recorded here, under witness of the constable and marshal of Township South, and in accord with the laws of the old king, that a legal bond be made between the parties Van Edwin of Burg and Canty of Oldholm, then independent, now a district of the township, that the former party be owed from the latter within half a year's time an object, antique, or artifact that, fitting his business and trade, could reasonably be sold for the value of no less than five hundred merry-gold mint golden coins, one percent of which shall be collected by the treasurer, as is in accord with the township law. He clears his throat and reads on, glancing toward Thomas. All appraisals shall be conducted by the treasurer, or by an appraiser, appointed to the duty by the treasurer for his skill and knowledge. If the indebted party fails to provide an object, antique, or artifact, which appraises for the agreed-upon sum within the allotted time, his eyes find me again, hard brown rings like shackles made from rammed earth and stone. The owed party may call upon the powers of the marshal to seize the indebted's property, either of equal kind and value of that which is owed, or of different kind and equal value, upon which the treasurer shall exchange the seized goods for currency, which is to be taxed, then paid directly to the owed party. He spreads the contract out in front of Thomas, and the Glassborough baker pretends he can read. Yes, sir. Says here, I'm supposed to appraise whatever it is you're trading to pay your debts. Go on then, fork it over, he says. I'm wanting to see for myself what kind of bauble is worth more than a North End apartment. The quietest circlet of kobold King Dermot clatters like chattering teeth on the polished tabletop. I warn them. Don't touch it with your bare skin. It's cursed, made from the bones and ligaments of former councilman James Edwin Gus. I think this is how the fairies took over the town. Their leader wore it, and even steel couldn't kill him so long as he had it on. Interesting, replies Van, though he doesn't sound as excited as I'd hoped. Do you know what happens if a human tries to wear it? I haven't tried, but I think that'd be a bad idea given how badly it burns just to touch the damn thing. Thomas leans over the table and examines the string of fingers and toes. Squinting and scratching his curly white chin, he asks, What do you think, Constable? Grant glares at me and defers responsibility. It's not my duty as Marshal to determine such things. Use your best judgment, Treasurer. The last word falls out of his mouth sodden with envy. The baker fails to notice, or perhaps he just doesn't care what the constable thinks of him. My best judgment, huh? Well, this ain't worth an apartment to me. 
don't know nobody who'd be willing to buy it. I'd probably have to pay somebody just to get rid of the thing. So, if it's up to me, I say this thing ain't worth nothing. Broken jumps up out of her chair. Nothing? I thought we were friends, Thomas. I told you, girl. Ain't nobody got no friends in Glassboro. But we're not in Glassboro. We're in South. Van Edwin extends his hands as if the two might start fighting atop the table. Friends, friends, there is no need to squabble. I'm more than happy to take the crown as payment. You will, I say, finally able to talk. Thomas's appraisal had dunked my head under the surface of despair, but the curio trader always seemed to pull me out of it. First when broken left, then again today. Really, my debt should be bigger than 500 gold, but I'm really glad that it's not when he tells me, of course, my friend, it'll be tricky, but I'm sure I can find some budding occultist who'd pay at least a hundred gold for this, maybe more if I'm lucky enough to catch a mainlander come to trade in Berg. One hundred, I think, and feel my white skin further pale of blood. I utter the sum aloud. Edwin smiles and says, that's what I recommend it be appraised for. He turns his grin toward an astonished Thomas. What do you say, treasurer? Can we call it a hundred and move on to the next item? My head returns beneath the black waters of despair. There is no next item. Since the day we defeated the kobolds, Broken and I have spent every waking hour overseeing the mines or reading from our tomes or training with the mystics, either us teaching them or Virva teaching us her strange stage tricks and illusions. We haven't even once gone swimming in the river to the girls' lamentations. And this whole time, I thought I was fortunate to have anything at all to offer Van before we leave for the expedition. I was wrong, and now I have to beg with my head hanging over the table. I'm sorry, this is all I have for you right now. But if I had a few more days, not true, Warden. Grant spits and grimaces like a mouthful of medicine. You are in possession of the largest parcel of land in the township the value of which is more than enough to pay your debt. The girl bolts up again, her new silk indigo hat flying off her head. You can't take Oldholm. We live there. Canty, tell him I'll have Gerard rip his heart out if he doesn't take it back. Broken, we've talked about this. You can't just say things like that to other people. I didn't say it to other people. She huffs, fetching her hat and pulling it tight on her head. From under its brim, she glares across the table, then back to me. I said it to you so that you can tell him. It's different. I sigh and tell her. It still counts. That's not fair. It's different. Ehem, Edwin cuffs to catch our attention. Please, peace, friends, if I might intervene. This bickering is unnecessary, for I'm about as envious of your land as I am of taking your little witch for a daughter. And I thought mine own were tough. I dare say, Canty friend, you're in for quite the challenge come the next couple years. But back to business. I know the contract dictates I be paid in artifacts, but I'd be willing to take an installment of gold in its place. One hundred fifty pieces, and the Fey crown would do for now. Then I can come back for the rest during the fall season. Van's a real friend to offer such an extension on what was already a long-term investment. And while I do have the money... I can't afford to spend it all now. Thank you, but if I pay you what I have today, there's no way I'd be able to make the second installment. Really, 
What'd be better is if I had more time. Two weeks is all I need, and I'll definitely have something worth your while. You mean the expedition to the Miasmatic Mountains, don't you? The curio trader rubs his naked chin. The Union Church is banking on the very same to refill their coffers, so I don't doubt that you'll find some grave goods there. Maybe even a fortune. But a fortnight is a long while for a traveling merchant to wait. I'd have to stay an extra week in South, which means I'm going to miss out on the summer shipments back home. I'd need interest to make up for those losses and collateral in case something goes wrong. I swallow. What did you have in mind? He nods at Thomas to let him know he's proposing a change to our contract. Van clears his throat and inhales through his nose, looks at me for a moment, then says, We'll have to double your remaining debt. That's 800 Merigold golden coins, or the equivalent in merchandise by the end of the expedition. As collateral, I'm sorry to say I'd need a few things, namely, the sword of old King Ogier, the dragon lance, the occult tome I sold to Bilar, and Turnpin's history. I'm sorry, he repeats his apologies, to make the situation so dire, but each piece is really only worth what the buyers can afford, which isn't as much since the crashes in Marigold and now Glassboro. Yet still, I have to feed my family. I hope you understand. Of course, I answer and extend my hand. I'd do the exact same if I were in his position. You might even say that I already am. We shake and part ways amicably after that. Broken and I head to the Mystics Guild Hall to check in with Verva before stocking up. This will be our last time to see each other before we leave come morning. I wish she could come with us, Broken says, as we pass through the market bustling with bartering, chattering, and the occasional cheer for its heroes, for us. I'd be lying if I didn't admit that I enjoy it. The praise, the admiration, the respect. Yet there's another part of me that wishes I didn't. It's the same part that feels like all the good I've done is really just incidental. That truly, I've only been looking out for myself and the people I care about. Even in saving the town, I don't see moral high ground when my motivations were mostly selfish. I just wanted to set a better example for Broken. Without her, I'd probably have stomached going along with Nostius's plan. Ha! Huh, who am I fooling? Without her, I'd never have found out about Bilar's dabbling in the occult. I'd still be a useless trog haunting the vault, wasting each day away in crown-capped nightmares. I'm sure she'll miss you too, but it'll be nice to have someone other than Chaka who's happy to see us come home. And besides that, who's going to protect South while we're gone? Grant, Thomas, and Domnall. Fat chance of that, she rolls her eyes. Those guys are useless without our help. I laugh and pat the girl on the head. She's getting taller fast, almost up to my chin now, though I know part of that is the heels of her boots. Still, it makes me feel as though she's growing up, that soon I'll be an old man, and that life will have passed me by. I only hope that when it does, I'll have something to pass down of myself. Something to keep alive the clan of the Antler. To make the name a thing to take pride in. A thing worth defending. Dermot's warning echoes in my ears. What thou seest here is only the beginning. The old king is risen and is rousing awake his slumbering soldiers. 
We arrive at the mystics to the squeak of the orphan doorman. I swear to the spirits, he's been put here just for me. No matter how many times I tell him it's not necessary, he bows and mutters, We've been expecting you, Lord County, as we enter the hall. Toward Broken, he only nods so she can see his wink and smile. Each time, she rolls her eyes and asks me why boys are born so much dumber than girls. And each time, I try to come up with a new answer. It's a fun game, and today, I think I've got a really good one. I say, because only stupid men are brave enough to run toward monsters instead of away from them. You don't need to be stupid to be brave, she argues. So as per the rules, we decide to let Virva mediate. She's just finishing a lesson with a group of new junior mystics, teaching them sleights of hand that make objects appear to vanish and manifest out of thin air. Illusion. We've decided to name that branch of mysticism, separating it from the arts of alchemy and pyromancy, the three schools of magic taught here at the Guild. It drives Nostius and Domnol mad, our senseless classification and conflation of natural philosophy with the occult with mere smoke and mirrors. I understand their frustration, but I don't see how it's senseless to categorize them together when I'm watching a woman pluck knives from nowhere and spit clouds of fire and put people to sleep. Do boys have to be dumb to be brave? Broken repeats her question as Verva comes down from the stage having just finished her lesson. She looks at me and chuckles. Some do and some don't. Regardless, we all start out as fools whether or not we become courageous, cowardly, or brilliant. The girl buries her face in the folds of the mystic's robes and wraps her arms around the woman's waist. For the second time today, she's knocked her hat to the floor in a spring of sudden emotion. A danger for someone so young yet in command of such strength. I think of what she said to Grant about Gerard tearing his heart out, that she could actually make that happen, causes my old concerns about her mishandling of death wands to seem like less than child's play. And then there's the new spells she's learned. Makes me happy essential salts have become so expensive. And happier still that she has Verva to teach her how to handle when she's feeling overwhelmed. I pick up the hat and dust it off while they work through for the hundredth time why Virva won't be going with us. You'd think the pink streaks and speckles scarring her face would be sufficient reasoning. It is for me. At least, the guilt still weighs so heavily on my back that I don't think I could bear her getting hurt like that again. But no, they focus mostly on Virva's responsibility to the guild, she being the only senior member with so many new juniors joined. It's her duty to teach them and to keep them safe, she explains. And I realize she's afraid that what happened in Marigold might happen here, that upon her return she'd discover her guild seized and her students slaughtered or otherwise dispersed. With the church in South now, I can't say that's impossible, nor is there anything stopping the Fey or the Hobbs, nothing except for us. It takes a little while till Broken understands, then about another minute for them to separate. When they finally do, the girl turns to find me, wagging the indigo brim in her face. I tease her, with how much time this thing spends on the floor, you'd think you don't want it. Maybe a donation is in order. I bet Ross would be interested in a brand new silk hat. 
Broken snatches it back and sticks out her tongue and murmurs something about having already given her one that she never wears. Then the two of you aren't so different, I jape, and the girl rolls her eyes the same way she did for the orphan boy. But before she can reseat her hat and render my comment invalid, Virva lets us know that, if we're done playing, Gnostius delivered a pair of masks before dawn this morning. Apparently, he was so excited to see us try them on, that after staying up all night finishing them, he rushed over himself, hoping to catch us at the hall. I'm surprised he didn't just send someone. After all, he'd figured out the new design for his miasma filter masks months ago. What's there to be excited about? I wonder until Virva shows us the presence Nostius left. I wish he hadn't. I would have liked for him to be here for when we first try these on. They are each a headdress like the ancestral skull I lost in the catacombs. Mine an elk and hers a deer, both plated with blue-black patterned silver and with antlers reaffixed and preserved with resin. That's how they seem on the surface, but underneath, the alchemist has rigged them with all modern technology. Inside is a suspension system with adjustable straps, smoked resin lenses in the eye sockets, and the new miasma filter is hidden inside a detachable lower jaw. Broken puts hers on, the lower half of her face exposed without the bottom attachment, and immediately climbs the stage to gaze into a mirror. Whoa! I see her mouth, the word, speechless. And when I join her reflection, I do exactly the same and think to myself that those are strangers staring back, figures made sinister by a twisted-looking glass. But then Broken breaks the silence. She recites the new spell she's been working on, reminds us that what's truly frightening hides inside our own souls. Crystallization, ossification, petrified marrow, and coagulated blood. From dust, life. From life to dust returneth the primordial rotundum. Ouroboros, come. She looks at me with a big grin from cheek to cheek. Now we both get to be lords of fear. Her incantation has me shivering from the chills down my spine till dawn breaks the following day. After a full midday's rest and a night of packing, we watch the sunrise from atop a ridge that overhangs the vault's renovated entrance. Kobold work. They replaced the whole ramshackle wall with a pitch-sealed frame and double doors made from black volcanic glass harvested underneath the mountain. They shine matte yet reflective on the face of Black Lake as the old tyrant breaks red and gold above the trees. A rush of bird songs drowns the hush of the river deep. I can't say what kind. I've never known them to sing this close to the salt basin. It makes me wonder if this is one of those rare omens of fortune. Or maybe it's because the spreading miasma has driven them this far south. I suppose we'll find out. The day has finally come. The summer expedition. For the last time for the next two weeks, Broken and I delve into the vault to retrieve our packs and confirm the instructions we left for Gerard. He's waiting for us just behind the doors, an eternal sleepless vigilant shadow-skinned, and armed with my old mace, rehafted and ready in the hands of the Revenant. He's to watch over Edgar 
and ensure that Chaka is fed and muzzled so that the Hob's not tempted to eat the other prisoners. The kobolds, I mean. We call them prisoners, though honestly they seem more like servants. Since I slew Dermot, they've made no attempt to riot or escape and hardly complain about their fetters. Steel hoop earrings plated in red lead, a pigment mined in Berg and traded by their merchants to the Golden Anvil who forge it into a corrosion-resistant alloy. The same stainless steel all those nails and chains used as wards were made from. Less iron, and thus less effective against the Fey. Had they been braver, more reckless, or more persistent, they could have taken a much greater portion of town than just the jailhouse. Luckily for us, they didn't find out until Broken had them pinned under partisans, and the watchful sockets of her spooky squadron, SS for short. I wonder if this isn't how the trolls were held captive by my ancestors centuries ago. Suppress their spirits with diluted bands of iron, yet leave them just enough freedom that they don't transmogrify. I could have told you that, Ogier comments, as we don our new gear, prepared especially for the trip. To the girl's chagrin, we're in matching, puffy, yellow-gold shirts and trousers under black, knee-high boots, gloves, and special-order smoked leather cuirasses. While we buckle each other's armor, the old king hums his praise. Now, if you only had a shield, it'd feel just like the old fey hunts. Do we have to? Broken whinges. I sling the kingmaker from my shoulder and strap on my pack. A shield wouldn't be such a bad idea if we didn't have so much else to haul. Bedrolls and blankets, deathwands, swords and knives, water skins, rations, medicine, and extra filters for our masks, chem lamps, and oil lanterns. They're all piled high on our backs and belts. Anything else, and we'd be buried alive before we ever reached the Hell Gates. For that same reason, even the armor is a compromise. After watching the junior mystic get stabbed to death, I intended to commission a couple old-style chain shirts, but was told that I didn't have the money or the time. So boiled leather it was and still is, even if the girl doesn't like it. Yes, we have to. I'm not risking you getting hurt because we decided to go in unprepared. She looks us both over, sighs and pouts. What if we brought just a couple of the SS to protect us instead? And keep them where exactly? And what if the church reps found out? Then we can lock them in our basement and see how they like it. I have to bite my cheek to keep from laughing. In a stern, a voice as I can manage, I say her name, Ashlyn. That grabs her attention. She glares and opens her mouth about to lash back, but I cut her off and ask, How do you think I would feel if you got locked in a cage again, or worse? We'll be out in the middle of no man's land. They'd probably just kill us like we were hobs. How would you feel if something like that happened to me? She looks down at her feet, at her reflection in the polished floorboards. More kobold work that's made this place feel like home, that makes us feel more like a family, makes our roles easier to accept. Giving in, she admits. I'd feel pretty bad. Right, I reply trying to soften my voice. We agree, then. The clothes aren't so awful that it's worth risking our lives. But why do they have to be so bright yellow? It stings my eyes. I shrug. 
and don my new antler headdress, the lower jaw hanging open like a necklace. Maybe they're the colors of new rhyme, black and gold. Broken puts on her own mask. Do you think the ruins will look like marigold? Only one way to know. We head out for our meeting spot, the northern edge of town a little ways past what was once Edgar's house. Someone else is living in it now, probably poor refugees by the condition they keep. It's still got the anvil's stainless steel nails warding the doorway, and the window sills are caked thick with layers of moisture-clumped salt. The same is true for the few houses left in the wake of Dermot's invasion. I suppose I don't blame them. Even with the forest cut back, the tree line is only a stone's throw from where we stand. Beyond that hides the acrid miasma, its caustic odor hanging over the barren parcels of land. Holy shit! You two look like a couple of cynic freaks, jokes Nostius, grinning hugely with teeth as yellow as his robes rolled and belted at the waist, black pants and boots underneath, and overtop a cuirass just like what Broken and I are wearing, only he's gone the extra mile and bought a pair of plate bracers, the metal itself plated with patented silver. He turns his attention toward the girl, tapping the armor on his forearm. Got them made especially for you, kid, just in case you decide to raise another one of those things. Maybe I'll get to keep my fingers. We stop short a few dozen feet, neither of us smiling. Behind the apothecary is a mule-driven wagon, laden with tools, all borrowed by the township from South's Miner's Guild who themselves have been borrowing it from Gaston Mining since the company's former overseer lost his head position. Hopefully, Broken and I aren't about to suffer the same. Behind the wagon looms a man bestrewn in cloth of gold and golden medallions. He wears a black lacquered mask itself, styled by a frizzy white beard and thick mustache. I recognize that false face, just as well as I recognize the hulking pair of shields, one punched through by Gerard's mithril spear and the other scoured clear of rust from its face. And that's her beside him, the very same shield maiden whom we fought before, covered completely by white gown, gloves, and veil, but for the incredible length of her silver-blonde hair. I take a deep breath and grab Broken's hand before she can tug at my sleeve or reach for her death wand. Neither the Maiden nor her champion seem yet to have seen us. They're too busy proselytizing the Miners' Guild scouts and deputies assigned for the journey. Nostius, though, notices our trepidation and lumbers over to where we're stopped so as to talk in private. He lets us know that the Union Church has been warned that it has no authority over South or its citizens. Grant gave the orders himself. If any one of the five deputies suspects friendly fire from representatives of Marigold, he is to treat it as an act of war and is accordingly to execute the offender as an enemy combatant. I think the news is supposed to make me feel more secure, but I'm not sure what's scarier, a bunch of young greenhorns toting shiny new death wands or a pair of zealots who can call lightning from the sky. I get my answer before Nostius has finished explaining something about strange noises from inside the forest. One of the lawmen, a ragged-looking fellow with tremors like those of a Glasper a PSO, makes a pass at the shield maiden and tries to peek underneath her veil. She utters an incantation, and before I can look, I hear the thud on the grass as four of the five deputies, Gnostius and one of the scouts, are compelled to their knees. 
It's as if a leaden chain has wound its way around their necks, invisible as it is heavy, so that each of them collapses without the strength to hold up his face. The call of the father, Lohan had called this, but in his story he never mentioned how quickly the spell could be cast. What was it, she said? Gird up thy loins? I guess from what I heard, but what does that even mean? To be a man, and ready yourself for war, answers Ogier, and I feel my hand let go of Broken's on its own and go for the sword hilt. Then, quickly, as if she had eyes behind her head, the shield maiden turns, the spell breaks, and her veil flies up with the motion. It's only for a second before the cloth falls over her face, but it's too late. I cannot unsee, nor can I describe anything but this dreadful feeling, like I've just had my heart torn out by some unimaginable demon, more horrible than the worst abomination ever raised by the desperate whispers of men. I would fall just like the others if not for her voice, haunting and holding my attention aloft, my nerves screaming in fear that lightning will be the next thing out of her mouth. But they're wrong. What she says is, Welcome, you wayward son and daughter of heathens. I see your souls swell with inner darkness, deeper even than these men, yet still ye stand. Broken swings her wand around by its strap, levels, and cocks the hammer. Watch your mouth, crazy lady. You're speaking to Lord Canty of the Black Flame and his seer. Bow down, or you'll be kissing the ground next. If it be my time to rejoin the Eternal Matron's embrace, then doest as thou wilt, and blacken thy spirit further. But wisdom saith thou wilt not. No, it would be naked deception for the Patriarch to blesseth you both, if not for the sake of repentance. You bitch! cries Deputy PSO, struggling to stand despite the spell's end. From one knee, he whips around his death wand, gets the muzzle level and the stock shouldered, his thumb on the hammer when the champion slams the edges of his shield to either side of the mechanism. I'm not sure what's louder, the crunch of crushing metal and wood and bone, or the screams the deputy lets out. My hands! My fucking hands are broke! He glares bleary-eyed at the other men. You heard what Grant said? Kill him! He said to kill him if they— Another clang rings out over the edge of town, from the champion banging his shields together. For the first time, I hear him open his mouth. Silence, ye spirits of deception, he hisses, like a snake slithering through gravel. May none but the eternal matron suffereth your cries. A command, not an incantation. The only power of enforcement is the gold titan's imposition, sufficient as a quietus knife to still the deputy's tongue. Likewise, none of the others answers the call to punish. They just stand and watch while Mr. PSO snivels over broken bones before skulking off on his own. I shouldn't shoot him, right? I should let him go, even though he's going to tell Grant and we're all going to get in big trouble when we get back? Broken asks tracking the deputy with her wand. The apothecary sighs. I say shoot him, kid. Yeah, but you're an evil wizard, Uncle Nostius. She lowers the muzzle, her target out of view. I rest my hand on her pack. You did the right thing. We'll deal with Grant when we get back. Until then, I look toward the others. How about we try to get along? What do you say? I trail off. I don't know the zealots' names.
Shalquar, the maiden answers, and my companion is called Malzel. Great, the crazies can read my mind. Only that which thou showest as emotion. Then you're aware you haven't lifted whatever curse you put on me, I reply, still reeling inside from what I saw under her veil. I can't even imagine it, even with the eye of Amgeen. So when she corrects me, I'm left skeptical for the rest of the journey. She says, Nay, no curse was placed upon thee, only the pains of witnessing the face of a divine consort, so beautiful that mortal men cannot but tremble in longing and terror, the same as if they had gazed upon the eternal matron. As thou hast, Lord Canty. Nostius groans, All right, that's enough religious talk. Now, if we're finally in agreement not to kill each other, we've got an expedition to start. Masks on, packs in the wagon, and everyone grab a sickle. Getting this thing through the forest is going to be a bitch. It is, though not for the reasons he expected. It proves easier to get the mule to wear a mask than to convince these Union fools who shun the beak-shaped muzzles, round resin lenses, leather hoods, and suspension as trappings of heathenism. They think their patriarch will protect them, even when the apothecary explains the effects of miasma on human bodies, as learned during studies in their very own church dungeon, dissolution of flesh as if by a strong acid, fastest in the eyes and in mucous membranes, the reaction producing more miasma and thus accelerating the process. And before you ask, no. Praying doesn't abate the effect no matter how pious you are. Still, they refuse until Nostius leaves without them, and they discover for themselves the limits of their faith. What is wrong with their minds, I wonder? And the old king replies, Such was the way with fanatics, even during my rule. While the border between the inner shadows of their souls and that of the outer darkness is emboldened, it means they are separate from the very source of strength that their religion was founded on. They are fragments who fail to understand that they cannot become whole through union with another. They are weakness and fear made blind by the idea that their souls are something different than those spirits of deception and destruction. What nonsense, he finishes. I'm not sure I believe him. The maiden and champion seem plenty strong to me, felling half a dozen men with nothing more than a whisper, and each of those shields must weigh as much as the kingmaker. Thank Amgeen, I can leave it loaded in the wagon until we've waded through the woods. I can't imagine lugging that thing through the forest, hardly able to breathe through the filter and humidity, all the while constantly hacking at underbrush. It's endless, cutting bushes and branches just so our wagon can pass a few more feet. Maybe it wouldn't be so bad if everything weren't sticky with viscous residue. Each swing, the thick purple substance accrues on our tools, weighs them down, erodes their edges, absorbs force sufficient to cleave normal brush, and sends our sickles bouncing off. It's enough to drown a man in his sweat-soaked clothes, and that's just the first hour. We work in shifts, if what little the Southmen contribute can be said to constitute labor, usual religious exemptions aside, rotating three at a time till night falls, and Nostius calls for us to make camp. Our blistered fingers cry out in relief. 
The bushes have beaten us, left our hands hilt-bruised and our bodies sodden all the way through to our empty stomachs. And for what? What ground have we won? Less than two hours' march had we departed from town without the burden of our wagon and mule. It gets the men thinking. A few of them argue, we should abandon our tools, double back for south, and resume in the morning, that we'll be better rested with some food in our bellies after a night sleeping in our own beds. I don't disagree. It's tempting. The notion of a hay mattress in place of the sticky, gnarled ground, of breathing fresh air, of being able to drink without jamming the neck of my water skin under a filter. But we can't. Chances are that Grant's got men posted at the edge of town. Any one of us spotted would be detained for questioning, at the very least, if not charged with treason for assaulting a man of the law. We stick to the plan, Nostius orders, in spite of the deputies and scouts' persistent grumbling. They groan on and on, gathering firewood while the rest of us ready camp. No tents, just canvas tarps for a roof overhead, and the sticky ground below, on which none of us really want to spread our bedrolls. Fortunately, according to the apothecary, the substance can be burned off with a sufficiently hot flame and should leave behind soft cinders for us to sleep on. Still, none of us are excited by the idea of trying to start a fire. All the wood in the forest has been completely compromised. Igniting it seems next to impossible. We end up resorting to burning a satchel of black flame just to get the kindling to catch. But even then, it's not enough to combust the residue. For that, Gnostius retrieves a torch whose head reeks of tar and whose surface is coated in a reddish powdered metal compound. He plunges it inside the pile of kindling chemicals hiss, then after a few seconds the torch froths yellow-orange with sparks. Everywhere they hit catches a deep dull fire, and even the air ignites in puffs of slow-burning flames. We watch, amazed as he draws a ring around the now smoldering campground, then traces that circle with the rest of our contaminated wood. Just in time, as the torch splutters out, the circle burns, a ward of fire feeding on miasma, pressing inward to fill the void. Stripping off his mask, the apothecary rasps. That should give us a few minutes to catch our breath. We gather around the bonfire, rations in hand, me working as fast as I can to reapply Broken's bandages. No one speaks the entire reprieve. We toast residue from our bread and jerky, our chewing seeming the only sound in the forest. I've never known it to be so quiet. It's like the old days living alone in Oldholm, not a single creature stirring, no howls of owls or wolves or anything, just silence and darkness as the flames start to flicker out. Masks go back on. The girl and I reattach the lower jaws of headdresses and huff muggy air through filters of bone dust. A minute passes. We sit like statues in silence and darkness. Another minute passes. Broken asks, Why don't we burn another one of those torches? For the same reasons I didn't burn one to start with, gruffs Nostius. I've only got so many of those things. And how many is that? I ask. Tension proliferates in the darkness as the apothecary pauses, reluctant to share. Eventually, he admits, Two. We've got two torches left. I hesitate to ask. And what happens after we run out? We won't, he says. We shouldn't anyway. 
The miasma is denser here under the forest canopy, so the residue is thick. Once we're out on the foothills, it shouldn't be so difficult to start a fire. But what if it is? It shouldn't be. But what if, I ask again, thinking of broken going days without being able to change poisoned bandages, going days without being able to eat? And what about the deputies and the scouts and the zealots? How long before one of them stabs us in the back? I can already feel the fear multiplying. Maybe the girl was right. We should have packed a few members of the SS just in case things go badly. Maybe we should go back and risk Grant's justice. Gather more supplies. Make sure we're prepared. Be not afraid, interjects the shield maiden, her voice muffled by her mask, softening its haunting element. Or are ye people of little faith also of small wisdom? What good comes of doubt if it soweth the seeds of strife among you? I don't care about what good it does. I care about my daughter not starving to death in a cloud of acid. Then is not thy duty thus, to fall not prey to such weakness of the spirit? Smug bitch, I think, asking, And what does that mean? Gird up thy loins, she answers, and those of us who'd not withstood her prior incantation flinch at the utterance. But this is no spell, just some religious nonsense. So I respond in kind, and tell her that I'm already wearing pants. Then all that awaiteth is for thy swollen soul to illume ignited and purgeth the shadows from thine evil heart. Cast not diamonds before boars, rasps the church champion, first to stand from our ashen bonfire. Then Shalquar rises, and as she and Malzel lie down to sleep, the rest of us follow suit, the forest black and silent but for our breathing. Morning brings more of the same as yesterday, more hacking and wading and sweating faster than we can sip the trickles from the pinched throats of our water skins. But no matter how much we drink, no matter how much we huff through these increasingly sullied essential salts, it's never enough to recover before we're up again, as if the time between our shifts and those of our fellow Southmen is shrinking with each rotation. Yet, we say nothing. Now is not the time to fuss or complain. We've hardly the energy to force our hungry, aching muscles clumsily as puppets, till at last the woods give way to the open, rolling hills. Compared to under the canopy, the air is clear and clean with only the faintest hue of death, and just ahead of us is another cause to celebrate. We take refuge this evening beneath the abandoned crypt in the depths of its catacombs, free to breathe, to eat, and to strip our sweaty clothes, lay them out to dry, and scrape them of residue. We do the same with our masks, change sludge-filled paper satchels with filters of fresh essential salts, easy breathing for tomorrow, and as for tonight we'll sleep cool and comfortable, naked on our bedrolls, except of course for the shield maiden and her champion. While the rest of us relax, they stand vigil in the darkness, listening, hearing echoes from the black tunnels running below the hell gates, some as far as hell itself, the old king's keep. On the precipice of sleep, I wonder, what did Dermot mean when he said the king is rousing his soldiers? No answers from Ogier, of course, as always, but my tired eyes don't seem to mind any more than does my aching body. 
So what if those echoes really are the thousandfold yips of an army of ghoulish footmen? It's not important now. All I want is rest. Third day, we wake late and share a hearty breakfast among Nostius, Malzel, Chalquar, Broken, and myself. To the slacker's exclusion, envy, and chagrin, we pitch in together for a new combination. Furry miasma, toast with hard cheese and berry preserves. After two days' hard labor, it's the most delicious dish since Maddox, bacon, eggs, and fried dough. Even the zealots agree, though I wonder if they know that the purple mold is condensed from gaseous human souls. Probably not, but nobody warns them. Why spoil our celebration after all that toil? With breakfast secreted away in our bellies, we dress and march armed north from the catacombs. By high noon, we've reached where the river deep cuts up and east toward the feet of the mountains. It's peaceful out here. Despite no sign or sight of animals, it feels more alive than in the forest, and almost as clear and cool as beneath the crypt. It's the wind that does it, rustling through patches of tall grass, and the occasional tree as relentless as the rush of the river deep. Together, they play melodious compared to the prior day's sickle-song cacophony. Just listening makes our weapons feel feather-light in our arms. Even the oppressive gremlin death engine hangs softly from my shoulder as the sunshine seems through smoked resin lenses. This is what an adventure is meant to be, I think in anticipation for the ruins of Old Rheim. We can see the city's silhouette from where we march along the floodplain, walls and towers shaped like those of Marigold built right into the mountain and cloaked in acid fog thicker than a pack of ghouls in a mine shaft. I can't wait to see it up close. Just another day's march, I tell myself. At this pace, we'll be at the Hell Gates by dusk. Then Nostius calls for us to halt. Hold up! Anyone else hearing that? The mule brays and the wagon squeaks to a stop. We listen, hear the sound of water and the sound of wind rustling trees and tall grass overgrown along the riverbank. We hear the muffled heave of our breathing inside each of our masks. A few seconds pass, a minute. The whole time, Nostius scans the horizon, his crossbow level, spanned and loaded with a mithril-tipped bolt. Gazing down the length of the quarrel, his weary eyes pick the plains apart, but find nothing of suspicion. Everywhere to look is only hills and boulders, spatterings of trees, man-sized reeds, and summer-baked grass devouring long-abandoned farmland. The mule stamps impatiently, and a few of the deputies start doing the same. I ain't heard nothing since we started this stupid journey, one of them complains. He lowers his wand hammer, slings the weapon, and his companions do the same, all except the youngest among them. He clutches his death wand close to his chest, fingers trembling. I heard it, he says, like somebody was dumping ore into the blast furnace. The older deputy laughs. Blast furnace? Boy, there ain't no blast furnace for a hundred miles. Could be a tunnel under us, the younger of the guild scouts interjects, pickaxe at the ready unlike his guildmate who agrees he didn't hear anything. Just a bunch of spoiled kids scared of their shadows is all. We've been mining these lands for Gaston for a generation. Ain't nothing out here but miasma and coal. 
He points his old staff model one toward Nostius and scoffs. This out-of-towner don't even know what we're prospecting for. Probably some evil shit that's gonna bring more of them fairies down on us. But the stories say King Ogier had hordes of rare metals in his keep. The senior waves his wand at the junior scout. See what I mean? Damn freaks done filled his head with that loony nonsense. South was better off before all you pothecaries and wizards started moving into town. Not one fairy spotted my pa's whole life. Then Bilar and Madoc went and ruined it for everybody. He prods the younger scout, death one muzzle against the muzzle of his mask. That's all it takes. One idiot gets some bright idea. Then before you know it, a wand blast cracks like a whip lashing our eardrums. Startled, people jump. And before they have the sense to duck, fingers jerk in a cascade of trigger pulls. There's the twang of a crossbow, a quarrel loosed uselessly over a nearby hillside. And at the same time, a secondary explosion of rock salt is shot from the senior scout's death wand. The mineral exits the barrel in fragments, riddles the junior's mask full of holes. His face too, I imagine, though how badly I don't know. A cloud of essential salts hides the extent of the gore, as does the miasma choke his moans. But that's just the half of it. The true horror is the girl standing next to me, cursing into smoke trailing from her wand. Damn it, I missed. I look toward the river, where the reeds have been shredded by rock salt. Nothing's there, at least no hobs or fairies. I glance again to be sure we're safe before grabbing hold of broken shoulders, spinning her around to face me and the crowd, while I shout through my filter, Missed what? What are you doing? What are you shooting at? Did you see what just happened? She stammers her reply. I... There was a Nixie by the water. I didn't want her to sneak up. Wait, what happened? Why are you so mad? Don't grab so hard, Canty. That hurts, she cries by the end of her return volley of questions. And in myself, guilt occupies where panic resigns. I let her go and step aside so that we both might look upon the consequences of recklessness. It's a bloody massacre with every hacking breath. The junior scout sprays puffs of ruddy mist through the perforations in his mask. Smaller and smaller, the girl repeats, looking back and forth between the mist and the reeds. I... I didn't mean for that to happen. It was an accident. I... I... Barney! The senior guild scout sputters, flailing like a man about to drown in chaos. Just hang on! Hold your breath! We're gonna get you help! He stares at Nostius while blubbering his promise. But the apothecary doesn't pay him a second's attention. So fixated is he on that gravelly din, resounding audibly now louder than the river or the wind, or even the junior scout's moans. It burns! Please help me! It's burning! Hold your breath, Barney, the senior repeats. Then to the rest of us, Can't you, Pothecaries, do nothing to help him? Nostius operates the magazine lever on his bow, spans and loads a bolt, and following his lead, the deputies fumble trying to swing their wands from shoulder slings into their arms. A few are dropped, and those that aren't are discovered unprimed, the hammers left cocked, and the brass caps fallen off, lost in the grass. Idiots! spits the alchemist, his head swiveling side to side. Where in hell are they? Thine eternal matron's shadowed womb.
answers Shalquar in the midst of an incantation. But the spell is too slow to stop the stone-skinned hands bursting from below and seizing the fallen weapons. And it's not only Deathwands stolen. Four muscled arms emerge like black yawning boulders that drag the junior scout screaming beneath the soil. Then comes the clangor of iron and silver, the trigger for my reflexes to draw Ogier's sword just as the word resounds lonely over the floodplain. Retribution! Too late. Lightning stakes the earth in a blazing column of consumed miasma, the grass a hollow of smoldering, yet the fairies go unscathed. Then there's another twang, this time succeeded by a thud in the ground between my and Broken's feet. I look down and see gritting ochre-green teeth and onyx eyes glaring, and a deep speckled arm reaching for my ankle. Trolls, muses Ogier, degenerate weaklings, always craven in their caves and hiding in the rocks. He wills my sword arm in a circle overhead and down again backhand to lop the Fey's forearm at the wrist. The limb retracts in a burst of white light, handless, and the stone face grimaces, eyes closed, never knowing the bayonet as it pierces his forehead, nor the girl who wields it, crawling on all fours, plunging her mithril lance head like a spade into the grass, anywhere she suspects there might be a troll. More often than not, she hits a rock, though that's a deal better than the rest of these fools. Three of four deputies flee for the hills. Two escape, but the other gets about halfway to the river, is pulled underground down to his waist and stripped of his mask. We leave him to gasp on acid mist. We, including the last remaining deputy, the youngest among them and the only non-idiot. Clutching his wand to his chest, he manages to shoulder it fast enough to spray salt shot into a troll surfacing beneath him. Granted, he shoots himself in the foot in the process, but with the fairy hit, we've got a captive. Nostius loads another quarrel, and thinking the same, takes aim at the paralyzed troll. All right, you ugly, pockmarked-looking sneaky sons of bastards! Show yourselves, or this one gets a bolt to the back of his head. Steadily, the apothecary inches closer to his hostage, while the others reload or tend to their exposed wounds, while I collect broken, still busy stabbing rocks. I swear to whatever trees or rocks or spirits you freaks worship, I swear I'll shoot him, calls Nostius. Show yourselves! Don't you ugly thugs care about one your own kind? A laugh like crunching gravel rings over the plain, immediately followed by coughs and blue-black spray from the paralyzed troll's salt-mangled face. We are not fools, hobbling, to come to thy call to be captured or slaughtered. We have been made wise. Never again will we answer the summons of servants of the Shadowed King. Quiet! Nostius orders. But the stone-skinned fairy wheezes on without fear. Never again shall we allow our spirits to be bowed down before the black souls of man, and turned hideous like them. But thee, hobbling, may thee bend under the burden of thine own blackened soul, a woe upon thee. The words emanate from below, a woe, a woe, and I recognize too slowly what should be obvious, a hex like those cast upon South's fey cursed, unpredictable, terrible, and with no cure we know of. 
Gnostius panics and looses his quarrel at close range at the back of the troll's head, but the Fae's hair and skull prove tough as a bugbear's matted coat. The bolt bounces off, and again the fairy laughs like crunching gravel, the bloody drip from his eyes and nose and lacerations on his face turning from black to human red. All the while the trolls below chant their incantation. A woe, a woe, may thy back be bowed. Under the eye of the moon, thy true nature shall showeth. Simultaneously, another spell's reverberations tremor through the air. Shields clang together, and the maiden recites her patriarch's retribution, calling down another column of lightning, this one upon the bleeding, rapidly transmogrifying troll. This bolt strikes true and false. Both Nostius and the young deputy reel from electricity, arcing off where the intended target stood. Gone now, in a blink of an eye disintegrated so utterly that nothing remains but a tower of scorched miasma. I ready myself for another attack, but none ever comes. The spell-shocked men lay unconscious yet undisturbed. The ground's gone silent, the air quiet, but for the run of the river and the rustle of wind through tall grass and the few nearby trees. We don't sleep the whole night for fear of darkness, of the dark beneath our feet, and of that beyond our wards of salt and of fire, set ablaze just like in the forest, only without need of the apothecary's torch. The dry grass and centuries of deadwood piled about the tree trunks serve well enough in the thinner miasma. We feed them through the night for their warmth and their light, take shifts standing vigil while the rest of us pass the time eating and distracting one another with discussions about salt-shot efficacy and what happened to the fairy when he was struck by lightning. It seems to the apothecary that the miasma worked to catalyze the transmogrification, that his blood was turning gremlin before our eyes and that had he not been obliterated, he'd have turned just like the little minions of Cynic. Chalcois disagrees. Nay, it was its spirit that changed like a man's changeth, swollen, black, and cold, as the eternal matrons embrace. Broken thinks they're both wrong, that really the troll's soul had dissolved itself as material for the ritual, and that part of the Fae's hatred hides inside Nostius. She doesn't tell the others, just me during our vigil. I pat the girl between the antlers of her headdress and tell her, You know, kid, you're as sharp as Gerard's dragon lance. She glares, so I add in quickly as I can. I meant before you blunted it on a bunch of rocks. I didn't mean to. I thought metal was harder than stone. That's adorable. But I bite back my laughter as best I can. I don't want to risk embarrassing her over something I failed to explain. So instead, I say, sometimes it is, though even then, it doesn't exactly work that way. Like how silver and iron are different, or a knife and a pickaxe. One's thicker than the other? That's part of it, yeah. And the shape matters. And what else is mixed in? And even how long the smith sticks it in the fire. But we can fix it, right? The Dragon Lance? Of course we can. When we get back, we'll take it straight to the Golden Anvil and have them grind a new tip. Now that I think about it, I should probably get Ogier's sword sharpened as well. That's good, she says, half listening, gazing into the surrounding darkness. 
It's really good when things can be fixed. It is, I think, and it's too bad that some things can't be. The thought makes me shiver. Even in summer, the night is cold and growing chillier as the hour creeps closer toward the end of our shift. Colder and quieter, despite the sizzling ring of miasmatic flame, we huddle for warmth, the only noise being the occasional clatter of antlers like chattering teeth. Neither of us say anything. Not until our shift is done and we're switching out with the zealots do I mention the girl's medicine. I grab our packs off the wagon. Let's redo your bandages. You've had those ones on all day. She removes her headdress and sits by the bonfire, pops a crown cap pellet in her mouth, and drinks a swig from her water skin. No, I'm all right, she insists, while scratching the backs of her knees and the insides of her elbows. They don't get so bad with all these clothes on, just sweaty sometimes, and itchy. I sit down beside her. We should at least do your face. Look, some are even falling off. I reach out to touch a hanging bandage, and she shirks away. Slapping at my hand, she asserts that she's fine, and that she'll fix it herself. I ask her what's wrong. Nothing, apparently. Though she sounds to me as though she might cry at the drop of a hat. So I ask again and again and again in different ways, till she finally answers when I call her by her name. Ashlyn. Don't call me that. Then you have to respond when I call you broken. I open a jar of balm and unwind some bandages. No resistance this time, but still, she isn't answering, so I ask, Do you understand? What if I don't want to be broken forever? What if I want to be pretty like Mrs. Bilar was before she got sick? What if I want to get married like her and have children and love them even if they're cursed or ugly or, 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 broken? She snaps out of her stammer, says, You can fix the vault and the town and the lance and yourself, over and over. Then why doesn't anybody know how to fix me? I look away from her, and through the flames. Nostius and the others sit on the other side, hearing but not listening, staring wearily into the yellow-orange light, hiding in the confines of their minds. Likewise, my eyes drift from theirs to the fire. I don't have an answer, at least, not one that would satisfy the girl. But I have to try, so I tear my eyes from the light and look her full in the face while removing her used bandages. Because, I start, my tongue stumbling in the dark. It's because people are more complicated than stuff and towns and things. And even those we don't really know how to fix. We can rebuild burnt houses and sharpen dull blades, get new doors and floors and a whole new constabulary. But none of those things will last forever and they're not always better than they were before. With a balm-laden finger, I gesture toward the lone deputy. Then I turn that finger on myself. Including me, I might not be as blind as I was a year ago, but I've made a lot of mistakes since then that have gotten us hurt. It's my fault Dermot escaped from that tunnel, and I should have been more vigilant in Marigold. I saw that hob coming. If I'd have just been more cautious, we wouldn't have been caught and locked in those cages. And then there was that duel I fought, and my plan with the profaned flame. And don't forget all those times the king convinced you to be a jerk. Broken grabs my finger and strips it of medicine. Rubbing the bomb in herself, 
her tone drops, defeated, as she asks, So you're saying nothing can fix me then? That I have to be broken forever? I sigh a deep breath of rosemary and peppermint, close the jar and start wrapping her new bandages. What I'm saying is that it's going to be hard, and it will probably take a long time. And even when we find a cure, it might not be as good as we wanted, and it probably won't last forever. Do you really think we can find one? And how long is long? Am I going to be old, like Thomas and Domnall? I laugh. You're still young enough that you shouldn't worry about that. About what? Getting old. Oh, she says. Then, you never answered my question. Can we really find one? A cure for the serpent's curse? I've never heard of anyone even making the attempt. It's one thing to be marred or maimed by the fae or an animal or even by a person. But when you're born into a condition, it's believed that the curse becomes intertwined with the soul. But what do we know? Nothing. And there's my answer. I've got no idea if a cure is really out there, but I know there's only one way to find out. Occult magic, monsters, murder, and death wands? I was thinking that we'd just go on an adventure. Aren't we already doing that, though? No. This is an expedition. What's the difference? Damn, the girls got me. I'm forced to answer on my toes. It's an adventure when it's just the two of us alone. Like when Bilar resurrected a monster and shot himself? She asks. Her tone turns snide as her smile widens. Or like the time we went spelunking when I raised Gerard and he killed Maddock who was going to kill you over a magic rock because he was really just a ghost wearing a dead guy. Hey, wait a second. Ogier tried to kill us. Just figured it out, the old king sneers. Only I can hear and only I can respond. Not to him, but to her. I point out, you said that forever ago, when we first brought Chaka and the sword home to the vault. Oh. She responds. I guess I forgot, but do you promise? Promise what? That we'll go on an adventure together and discover a cure. Of course, I start. Broken interrupts. And I want Virva to come, and Gerard, and Chaka too. Would it still be an adventure if it's all of us? Of course, I finish. It's always an adventure with us. Morning comes, then day, then night. Our feet tread softly, our fingers lightly at rest on the triggers of our weapons always armed. We are vigilant, cautious, skittish, to the extent that even a rustling branch becomes a mortal threat. Then kindling on the occasion the scout or deputy manages to hit anything more than a few yards away. If the trees didn't thin as the hills piled higher, I'd be worried that we might actually run out of salt. Then the fourth day passes, and the fifth day starts. My worries are gone. We're on the mountain proper now, the true gates of hell, where no amount of slashing with sickles or blasting with salt will allow the mule to drag our wagon forward. The ground here is hard and sheer, the climb steep and often taller than our heads. We're forced back and forth, east then west, looking for switchbacks gentle enough that the wagon once emptied and with us pushing from behind, can ascend to the next narrow plateau. Each climb exhausts the better part of an hour, though it feels longer than that. 
The tedium of unloading, then dragging heavy packs, rations, sickles, pickaxes, munitions and weapons uphill, only to load and unload them again within minutes. And unlike the forest, there are no breaks, no religious exemptions, only labor and heaving through the rapid decay of contaminated salts, so thick is the miasma. Above and below are completely cloaked in purple fog, and even just pressing forward proves treacherous. Nostius and the young deputy lose their footing more than once, as does the mule. It's near sunset when it happens. After scouring the mountainside left and right without finding a hint of an easy ascent, we settle for a jagged, crumbling spot that looks at least to have footholds. It doesn't. We discover while unloading the wagon that what seem to be cracks and crags on the mountain are actually fractured slabs of rock embedded in soil, the first dirt we've seen since we arrived on the Hellgates. It means we've reached halfway up the peak, where acid rain has eroded the stone over centuries. Excited by the prospect of soft soil and kindling, and maybe even a natural cave in which to take refuge, we goad our beast forward and onto the rock face, ignoring its wild braying. We don't recognize the warning until a few steps in when its hoof slips off a rock and into miasmatic residue that's mixed in with the soil. The mule panics, twists, and under the weight of the wagon snaps its weary leg and falls flat onto the slabs. The wheels drift backward. Nostius, Malzal, and I jump out of the way from behind the cart as it gains momentum, stretches the beast's broken leg, the weak link in the chain, until the weight tears free its hoof from the caustic adhesive and the wagon rolls over the narrow ledge into open air, where, together, cart and beast plunge backward dozens of feet into the miasma. Sounds of smashing follow, though we can't tell which is the mule and which the wagon. Nostius peers down the mountain and curses, and the old scout asks if that means we're giving up. Like hell we are! The apothecary hisses through the thick of his filter. Packs on, and everybody grab a pickaxe and whatever else you think you can lug up the mountainside. We'll have to leave the rest behind. We salvage what we can. Extra rations, water, and filters. So, the rest ends up meaning our sickles, camping kit, salt and munitions, as well as the packs of the deserters and those of the dead. No more fairy wards for us, and once we've expended the charges in our weapons, we won't have those at our disposal either. What worries me most, though, is the loss of our canvas, and the thought, what if we're caught by acid rain? It's not worth contemplating. Myself, King Ogier, and the Lord of Fear agree. All that should occupy my mind now is moving forward. The tremendous weight hanging from my shoulders, the moaning of my muscles suffering from fatigue. They are distractions, I believe, watching Malzel toss his shields onto the ridge overhead. Pickaxe in one hand, he cleaves deep into the miasma-rich soil for a handhold. Then, with his free arm, he lifts Shalquar above his head till she's ascended to the new landing. The display of strength is incredible. Inspired, I try the same and throw the Kingmaker, my pack, Broken's bags, and pickaxe. To my surprise, after only a few tries, all our goods make it up the ridge, and the girl and I are climbing just like the champion and his shield maiden. 
The rest follow the Zealot's lead once they see it's possible, though they struggle to keep up with our lightened spirits. We make it a competition between us and the Union pair, a contest to see who will be first to ascend to the next clearing. Shalquar and Malzal win every time, of course. But it doesn't feel so bad to be beaten by someone who deserves his victory. And besides, the whole time we're climbing, I forget entirely the worries that weighed me down moments before. Sore muscles uncover secret wells of strength, and what Hob or Fay would be so mad as to challenge the four of us flying fearless up the great fang of hell. As for the risk of acid rain, it's not long before we've ascended beyond the thickest clouds of miasmatic fog. We stand on true ground now, a lesser apex devoured by human device and natural erosion, where the first signs of life re-emerge from the mist. Broken and I crack a chem lamp and take in the landscape while we wait for the others to ascend. Grass grows short, thick, and indigo over most of the plateau, but in tall reeds around an iridescent pond, glimmering metallic black and green in the phosphorescent light. So still is the water that from where we stand, we can see the reflection of a flying buttress bridging this lower peak and the side of a higher mountain. The stonework is stained violet and further discolored by our chemical light. But I recognize the vaulted shapes, the sharp archways and decorative gables, which once bore a roof made immaterial by time. Now the bridge buttress runs exposed to the moonlight and whatever else that might descend from the sky. We decide not to venture too close to the shadowed entryway. There's no telling what monsters might await just within that gaping abyss. Better to scout the area for kindling and make camp till daybreak. For that, we search the further outskirts of the pond. It doesn't take long. On the opposite end, beyond some high reeds broken finds a few sapling trees that should serve for the night. But that's not all we find. While the girl and I baton the little trees into firewood, Shalquar kneels at the edge of the water. She sees something beneath the black surface of the pond, reaches in to grasp it, Malzel holding her so she doesn't fall in. So far does she plunge her arm beneath the water. Then she has it, extracts it, as her champion lifts her to her feet. A cage of fine wire and silvery sheen, whose absence of patina can only mean it to be the work of an alchemist, transmuted mithril. And within the miniature gibbet are the blue-black bones of some tiny creature. A sylph. Ogier figures that, when his people fled the spreading miasma centuries ago, they must have decided to abandon their familiars. Smart of them to get rid of the little backstabbing spirits, always whispering lies into wives' ears and tempting children off cliffs. Then why keep them in cages? I wonder as Shalquar carries her discovery to where we're piling wood for our fire. And how did they stop them from transmogrifying? Shouldn't those be little gremlin bones? You trogs don't know anything. They made them familiars, I said. And what's that? A contracted slave explains the evil king that a fae, if tortured and threatened with transmogrification, will often volunteer to bond its soul to that of a man as to retain its sylvan shape. 
The refugees of Old Rhyme likely carried this one as a means to keep the miasma at bay. Too bad they drowned it then. I'd risk a backstabbing fairy if it meant I didn't have to wheeze through this decaying filter. The essential salts are almost entirely contaminated. Fortunately, Nostius and the two Southmen are just scaling the last ledge. Reunited, we ignite the green wood with a satchel of black flame and stick our faces nearly into the bonfire as to safely change our filters and fill our mouths with purple furry rations. Sleep comes quickly to our exhausted bodies, fleeting as night, matched in speed only by the arrival of dawn. And when we awake, it's in full view of the ruins of Old Reem. A great flying buttress reaches ahead of us and into an eruption of blunted spires. Like a crown of yellow gold stained purple with corrosion, the towers wreath the mountain peaks and riddle below with tunnels like hollow roots of a tree. Shattered windows and open shafts litter the surface. Yet there is but one entrance, a gate portcullis, rotted, rusted to nil, waiting agape at the height of the buttress. Now lighted, the roofless bridge proves no more foreboding than a cynic city crossway, perhaps less so given the dearth of immaculate foreigners and elves. Still, I keep an eye out for Hobbes. Nostius, however, does not. He's busy commenting how difficult it must have been for centuries-old engineers to build such a structure without gremlin labor. We enter the gatehouse, announce both Nostius and Ogier, as we tread atop stains of rust and rot, and under an empty slot where centuries gone once hung the iron fangs of a today-decayed portcullis. Now, the only ward is miasmatic mist, thicker than in the forest or on the ridge. It's like a curtain, deep purple and viscous, even in the air. Our filters won't last an hour in this, not that we'd be able to find any artifacts. I can't even see my hands in front of my face, though I can feel them, itchy under my gloves, under my fingernails, on the soft sides of my knuckles, and in the webbing of the fingers themselves, and it's already spreading to the backs of my knees and my elbows and my toes, and too broken. I can hear the cage and little silver bones clanking beside me as the girl scratches as much as she can without tearing her skin, and she's not the only one. The young deputy, already limping before, is now hopping on one foot and cursing the fog stolen inside his wound through his salt-blasted boot. And so too does the senior scout fuss about the itch around his jaw and neck. Then he coughs probably choking on mist leaking in with fingers jammed under his mask to scratch. Only Nostius, Shalquar, and Malzel seem unaffected, though perhaps the former two are just too tough to show it. As for the latter, nobody really knows. He's disappeared into the miasma a few feet ahead of us, audible though invisible. His shields scrape and probe the residue-thick ground. And there's something else, Another noise among the fussing and clamor. Weapons up, the apothecary warns us. And everyone quiet down. I'm damned sure I heard something. But Broken can't stop herself from scratching, nor can she cease the jangling of bones like a bell in the cage. The same can be said about the deputies hopping and the scouts coughing, and likewise the champion refuses to halt his search. He rasps gravely as a troll, 
Thou hearest naught but thine ill-beating heart, Dark One. Thou shalt not further prevent the securing of our cut off and cut down. Multitudinous metal sounds ring loud inside the gatehouse as a swarm of bees, as a storm of quarrels. Fewer litter the ground than sting the champion, yet still the rain of iron-headed bolts falls heavier than the shields that clang to the floor, louder than the lingering twang of bow stings. Then we hear it, the yipping of several dozen ghouls hiding in the walls and in the ceiling, from murder holes, another volley of bolts, a cascade of screams, of men falling. The young deputy is shot down, the apothecaries hit, and at the same time, Broken and I are feathered with quarrels on our packs and cuirasses. One even glances off the girl's headdress and cleaves a bright scratch into the silver patina. It's all of her that's visible in this miasmatic mist, a deadly wound so narrowly missed. Had it struck a resin lens or landed just a bit lower? What if another did? What if her scream is stuck in her throat, choked by acidic gas, by gasps of shock? What if her body's gone numb from the sudden exposure? For all I know, she could be full of holes, dying silently right beside me. Nothing worse could be waiting for us than such a discovery. I worry while dragging broken from inside the gatehouse. I'm not sorry for deserting. They'd treat us the same way. I bargain, but in the open air, on the hybrid buttress bridge, it's only me who's buying it. We're a quarter of the way across before the miasma lets us go. I wasn't sure it would. The way it's chased us well past the gaping portcullis, grasping ever further, clinging to our clothes. Then all at once, the world returns visible. The cloud disperses, leaves us sticky with violet residue and crossbow bolts. I count two embedded in Broken's armor, and about half a dozen more jutting from her pack. No trace of blood. Thank the spirits for that, I pray to Amgeen. Yet something isn't right. She stops scratching, but instead staggers and coughs, sluggish and harsh like a horse drunk stumbling, throwing a fevered fit till we reach halfway across the bridge. Then to her hands and knees, she falls. What's wrong? I shout, whipping my pack around. Where are you hurt? Is it your filter? Just hold on. I'll get another one, then we'll replace your bandages once we're safe off this mountain. I say it like it's a promise. In truth, everything's been shot to ruin, or else soaked through, corroded or dissolved. Don't panic, I tell myself to search the girl's pack, but find it's in no better condition. Stay calm. I guess I'll just have to carry you on my back. Do you think you can hang on? Broken nods her head and, looking up, sees something so shocking she gasps between coughs. Chaka! The hob here? I question for all of a second before my mind swells with hope. The ghoul is strong and nimble as he is loyal to the girl. With his help, we'll be off the mountain within the hour, maybe even home within the day. I pray to thank the spirits again, turn to call Chaka's name. Hear the unbridled laughter of old King Ogier. I don't understand. Then it hits me dead in the chest. At first, I think I've been shot with a death wand, one of those heavy enforcers with bores the size of silver coins. But the impact smashes more like a hammer. It caves my cuirass, compresses all eight layers of linen underneath, so that the boiled leather bears down on my body. 
ribs crack, my lungs empty of wind, and I can hardly believe that that's not the worst of it, because it really is our lovable hob crushing my breastplate, glaring crimson and possessed, foaming through his muzzle a lather of miasma, a bone from one of Broken's SS, snapped in his snout. Yes, hisses Ogier. You remember your purpose to serve your king? Hark, obey my will and seize this degenerate. Take him to the keep. Spirit, flesh, and I shall be reunited. I will once again become the sole ruler of Sealand. And then the... What? What are you doing? The old king blathers, blind as ever, as the ghoul moves with the grace of a butcher. Claws extended in a single stroke, Chaka rips through resin, skin, and bone, and tears the eye of Amgeen from my skull. Ouroboros, I utter, and the Kingmaker explodes in stream of fire and smoke augmented beyond the load of its primitive powder charge. Echoes of thunder shake the mountain to its foundation. It's the miasma, from the air and from the residue stuck to our clothes and the buttress stone, absorbed during the course of the transmutation. The power produced from concentrated souls throws both leaden ball and proxylic tendrils with force in excess to launch the ghoul beyond the long-decayed roof and over the walls, off the buttress bridge, into the ravines he falls, yipping. Darkness follows. Broken, are you all right? Canty calls out to me, though he's the one lying wounded and exposed. I can smell the reaction, Miasma and blood splattered on his headdress and soaked through both clothes and armor where a stuck quarrel got shoved further inside. I want so badly to ask him what Chaka was doing here, why he attacked us, but every time I speak it's only coughs and trembles as the numbness deepens. It makes my muscles so weak that when I try to help Kanti to his feet, the exertion only worsens my ceaseless fit. The coughs get wetter, heavier, and they burn in my chest. I hate this, being sick and useless, being broken. The poison just seeps into my skin, and I can't do anything but watch as he unslings the kingmaker and casts it aside, rolls likewise onto his elbows and knees, then struggles to his feet, all the while telling me not to worry. Just hold on, he says, pulling my body ragdoll onto his back like a pack, while a freakish howl emanates from inside the gatehouse. The yipping of ghouls turns to blood-curdling shrieks, human and hob, yet Canty doesn't respond. He just starts marching southward at his hobbled pace, saying over and over about when we make it back home. We're going to go on an adventure, me and you and Virva and Gerard, and Chaka too if he's behaving himself. We're going to find you a cure, and then you won't have to wear bandages anymore, or eat crown caps, and you'll be able to play in the sun without burning up. You could spend every day of every summer for the rest of your life playing in the river with Roslyn and your friends from the Mystics. Every day, you'll be happy. We just need to get you home. This, he rambles, over and over the switchback descents, groping his way, blind inside his miasma-filled headdress, no longer stinking of blood, but of dissolving flesh. It's not long before he's coughing as often as I am, then more, wetter, heavier. Yet still he carries me, my death wand, 
and my pack on his back through poison fog, down gravel trap descents, on to the Hellgate's foothills, and further over the overcast floodplains. Home, he wheezes more blood than breath. The trees and reeds rustle. The river deep hushes like a mother does her infant child. Yet still the little silver bones clamor in their cage as the Lord of Black Flame misses a step. He lurches a foot closer toward the riverbank, and I nudge him with what strength I have left back on course. Home, he wheezes, crying now, his body breaking down as the poison perfuses his blood. But there's still so far to go, hours, days left. Home, he cries again, choking on tears and caustic foam. Broken, hush, whispers the cold dark river deep, familiar and haunting. Please, child, hush, be silent, be still. I cannot bear to see you suffer. Please, for me, hush, be silent, be still. It brings Canty to his knees, so he crawls painfully into the evening. The whisper persists. Be silent, be still, I cannot bear to see. It draws closer each time I nod in and out of miasmatic sleep until, on the verge of memory, I can almost see it. A silhouette on the riverbank, a shadow through the reeds, like a banshee weeping, wading atop the water. She reaches for me, but seizes Canty instead and drags us both into the depths. It doesn't hurt so much anymore. I wish I could have told my mother how the icy water is balm on my skin. How easy it would have been to douse an infant in the river. How peacefully I might have slept, even without crown caps, but instead it was she who decided to sleep. Alone. Without me. Because I was broken. She tied a rock to her ankle and stole into the night pale as winter. Was I with her then? Or do I only imagine her frail, sleepless figure sinking beneath the black, floating below the surface? I wish I could have told her to tie a rock to my ankle, to take me with her down to that peaceful place where I wouldn't have to grow up without a mother, where I wouldn't be broken, where no one would abandon me. Then why am I so scared? Hush, child. Be silent. Be still. The voice urges me to join her, but my eyes are opening. I can see for myself that the deeper we go, the darker it becomes until nothing's left but the bitter cold and the numbness that follows. This is what I wanted. This is what I wished for. This frozen, shadowed loneliness, dragged to the bottom of the river deep by some starving fairy whispering lies to me, to Canty unconscious and bleeding into the water clouds of blood thick enough to camouflage my drawing of a knife. Be still, the Nixie hisses, and I fly into a rage. Using up the last of my air, I swim through the blood, stabbing wildly as I can under the effects of the miasma. The Fay doesn't see the first thrust coming, nor the second, nor third for how much blue-black plumes into the water. Then suddenly, I feel my strength coming back. Each stab seems easier than did the last, and deeper and brighter with white fire lighting up the cloud of blood until the Nixie lets go. You be silent, and still, and broken. I curse the girlish figure as it sinks to the riverbed. I hate fairy tricks. She might have stolen Mother's voice, but she looks nothing like her. Too short and too skinny. More like me if I'd ever let a brush touch my hair. 
But my blood and bones aren't silver. They're human. And despite being strapped with a pack and death wand, they're floating free from the grip of the Nixie. It's Canty. He grabs me around the waist and thrashes his legs till we break the surface. Then it's my turn to kick us toward the bank. We make it safe to the muddy shore, tear off our flooded headdresses forgetting the miasma till our frantic gasps for air taste of poison. Broken, he coughs and starts clawing through my pack. He pulls out a punctured, drenched filter of essential salts and presses it into my fey, bloody hands. Without bothering to install it in my mask, I press the filter against my lips and breathe as hard as I can. For my efforts, I suck up a mouthful of sodden bone dust out of a hole punched by a ghoul's bolt. Spitting and wheezing, I let him know, It doesn't work! It's for the cage, Canty replies, coughing and spraying fey blood from where his nose has been eaten by the mist. The bones! Ogier said they keep away the miasma. The sylphs! A resurrection! Does that even work on fairies? I want to ask but the acid in the air is pressing in on my lungs, destroying more of his face. So I drop my pack and my death wand, spread a circle of wet salts, and place the cage at the center. I'll need your help, I say, trying not to sound afraid, trying not to imagine what monsters we might make. Then Canty pats his hand atop my head, smiling despite the bones exposed on his face. Of course, he manages between coughs, steps back. I follow his lead, wielding the bayonet as an athame, and he Ogier's sword. We point them toward the mithril cage, to the silver bones inside, breathe deep a chest full of fire, then speak the occult incantation, Ouroboros, Enantiodromia, Reconstitution. <laughs>